the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Oh my God, Justin, I'm calling you from a tin can that I've linked from my house on a string all the way to your house. This is very unusual. It might sound like that. It's very unusual. This is our first remote recording. It was almost like we anticipated a pandemic because we had pre-recorded so many episodes prior to finding out that, you know, we had to social distance. So we ran out of episodes finally. So now we're that were pre-recorded, so this is our first remote recording, so you'll notice it sounds a little bit differently. Uh, we won't dwell on that, though. We'll just go straight into our movie that we're doing for this episode, and that is Todd Salon's Welcome to the Dollhouse. We thought we'd pick the most awkward movie to talk about when we sound awkward. So uh, we went with this one, and I, I can't even say how much I love this movie. I saw it when it came out in the theater, And that was my first introduction to Todd Salons, and I think for a lot of people it was too. Yeah, same here. I saw this when it came out in theaters, and uh, I think this was one of those first few movies that I saw that were uh, like a real independent film that looked really independent and kind of did different things and kind of made me see how movies could be made in a different way. Uh, I revisit it, you know, every now and then, but this was one that I hadn't seen in a little while prior to us, you know, getting ready for this episode. And when this came out in 95, um, yeah, that was when I saw it. It struck such a chord with me because I was that age. And my cousins uh, took me to see it. I know that like when I walked out of the theater, they got it on a whole other level. Like they had already gone through, you know, awkward preteen years and I was living it. And I, I, I don't think at that time I had experienced too much bullying um, that was yet to come. Yeah, this movie really, really uh, made me feel like I, I could identify with a character. Certainly a nerd that, um, I don't know, that felt kind of isolated. Yeah, I'd like to think that even though this movie is pretty provocative, I think everybody at least once in their life has gone through some sort of moment where they feel like they don't fit in or they feel ostracized. So I feel like there's a universal appeal to this movie in some ways. Yeah, some more than others, yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. <laughs> Except for well, the people that had a perfect life. All those guys, God. I mean, first off, talking about this movie, with any Todd Salon's movie, his films aren't for everyone. I think that if you can put aside your feelings on certain taboos or things that make you feel uncomfortable. I think anyone can watch his films and find something relatable. You know, they can definitely pick at you in some, in some certain ways, but I think it's because it's uncovering some truths that are hard to talk about and more taboo than other subject matters. Yeah. I think that's one thing we'll talk about quite a bit is the, just the sort of themes and the ideas that Todd Slons uses in this film and his other films as well. And how, they are, I mean, his films, including this one, are an uneasy watch. I feel like Welcome to the Dollhouse is probably an easier watch than the other films that he's put out. 
Oh, yeah. And I, I never thought I would actually say that, but I completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the dollhouse is the most palatable. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we'll definitely talk about um, his other films and how this film fits into those kind of where he was coming from before Welcome to the Dollhouse came along in his life. I mean, casting uh, production notes kind of on on the film as well. There's a hell of a lot of themes in this movie to uncover i'm sure ones that people if if you went through junior high you know where we're going with this and uh definitely get into like you said production notes and behind the scenes stuff i always feel that indie films especially from the 90s like the stories of how they got made or kind of what happened to them after they came out is always is fascinating to me oh yeah definitely so yeah production notes when it was being made and then um, certainly afterwards the reception of the film and where it led um, the folks that made it to. Um, also, we'll get into our picks of the week. I went, uh, I stayed uh, with Todd Salons. I chose, I kind of bounced around a bit with what I was going to choose, but I landed on uh, Todd Salons 2001 movie storytelling. Oh, awesome. I'm so glad you did this. I, you know, when I, texted you and i was like justin they totally like red boxed out a sex scene in that movie amazon god way to censor and then i was wrong that it's, was the that was, was the, yeah the only way that that movie was distributed yeah i also stayed with todd salons for the 1998 film happiness and that was the movie that came after welcome to the dollhouse yeah, it's another one i saw in the theater that was packed quite a punch I didn't quite know how I felt when I got out of the theater for that one. I've always loved it. And I think I've only in the last few years felt more at ease about talking about it because it it was always a movie that made me feel uncomfortable to even bring up in conversation that I liked it a lot. Well, I look forward to hearing about that one. And I look forward to storytelling. I really loved watching that movie. Those are picks of the week. Of course, we'll round things out with our Murray moments. Before we get into our first clip from Welcome to the Dollhouse, Lindsay, can you just give us a brief lowdown on uh, what this story is about, the story of Don Wiener. Oh, little Don Wiener. All right, synopsis. Seventh grader Don Wiener is plagued with constant bullying at school and is forever the forgotten middle child at home. While she's falling for the high school hunk who barely knows that she's alive, Don carries on a secret relationship with her main tormentor at school. If there's ever a movie made, like, for kids who were pushed around at school, it is definitely this one. This maybe one of the best sophomore films out of a director. Yeah, totally a breakout movie for for a director. I think this movie is um, also really stood the test of time. But we'll go to our first clip from Welcome to Dollhouse. We'll come back and we'll start getting into this thing. Sounds good. Mark? Yeah. What are you doing? Computer science. Is Steve good at computer science? Well, he's fair. I mean, he's definitely in the bottom quarter of the class, but he doesn't fail or anything. Why do you think that is? Simple. Because he's lazy. All he ever thinks about is girls. Do you think about girls? What, are you kidding? I want to get into a good school. My future's, like, important. 
And besides, none of the girls to score are that pretty anyway. What about Maria Esposito? Yeah, gross. Steve went out with her once, didn't he? Yeah, well, Steve is horny. Really? How horny? I mean, like, he'd go out with anyone as long as it was a girl and willing. Willing to what, exactly? Go all the way. You mean, have intercourse? Duh. Huh. Why, are you in love with him or something? No. But, Mark, when you say he'd go out with any girl, as long as they're willing to go all the way, does that mean they have to also be pretty? You know Tammy Steinfeld from Carpool? Yeah. Okay, do you think she's pretty? Not that pretty, really. Dawn, she's a dog, and he did it with her. Has he ever done it with anyone younger than high school? You know Ginger Friedman? She used to be in my gym class. Why not ask her about Steve? So like we were saying, uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse was quite a breakout film for director Todd Salons. Uh, this was only his second feature, and his first one was kind of almost his downfall. Like, he, after the his first feature, he didn't really have the confidence to um, make another movie. Yeah, he felt pretty much demoralized and just humiliated, actually, and when it when it came out. And I think there's also a lot of there was some studio involvement where he feel like he lost control. And um, when he talks about it, that experience now, he refers to himself as just being young and foolish. And it was somewhat of an ill-conceived idea. According to him, like I've, I've not seen this. I've never been able to get my hands on this, but um, this is how he describes it. And he actually did star in this movie, uh, his feature film debut that came out in 89 and it was called Fear, Anxiety, and Depression. Just from the title alone, I really want to see it. I want to see everything that it was about, even if he thinks that it was uh, something that, that set him back. And it really did in some ways. He just kind of swore off that he was ever going to do movies again. And it was in 88. So I think when he had started production on, on Fear, Anxiety, and Depression, that he wrote Welcome to the Dollhouse and had, had put the script away thinking, you know, this isn't going to get made. I got to focus on making this movie. And then he makes it, it flops. He is like, I can't do this anymore. He basically takes five years off and is becomes an ESL teacher for uh, Russian immigrants in New York and has a good experience doing that. But he was was helped by a friend uh, who really encouraged him to to get back in the saddle and and make another movie, which ended up being Welcome to the Dollhouse. And I think when he started thinking about it more, you know, he felt like I don't want fear, anxiety, and depression to be what's branded across my name as a director. So, and and thankfully, Welcome to the Dollhouse came along. And that movie, Fear. Anxiety. anxiety and depression is really hard to find. I mean, I, I wonder in retrospect if Todd Salons thinks it's as bad as he makes it out to be. I saw on Amazon someone had a VHS copy of for like $180, which I don't even know if, Jeez. It, if I don't even know if it's real, though. You know, so it's like, yeah, it's, it's real hard to get a hold of. So if anyone uh, listening has a copy of that that they can dub for us or send us, uh, that would be amazing because I'd really love to see this movie. I know he sort of disowned the film, but 
it, you know, just as for being a completist in and of itself, I'd love to check it out. Yeah. It's not something that I feel like I would even judge him in any way. I would just love to see the movie that he made before the string of, of movies that I have loved so much afterwards. One thing that I found in researching kind of where salons came up with the idea for this, not only, you know, drawing on personal experiences, not so much being, you know, super bullied or anything, though he did experience that and witnessed other kids too, but someone brought up the show The Wonder Years, and I grew up watching The Wonder Years. Um, I don't know if you saw anything about this, Justin, in your research. Yeah, I did see that, that that, that Wonder Years sort of inspired the the tone of Welcome to the Dollhouse. Inspired the tone and, and that he he hadn't seen the show. And so he went back and watched some episodes and it was idealizing this period of of time where, when he grew up and he didn't recognize it. He felt that it was, this was supposedly the area I grew up in and this was not my experience at all. So I think the idea of trying to represent an accurate uh, portrayal of what, what kids were going through at the time when really we were coming out of the eighties when John Hughes kind of made being a teenager. Sure, it was awkward, but everything was kind of like flowery kisses and pillows, too. Yeah, I, I do I do think that Welcome to the Dollhouse is one of the first movies that I think kind of tackled that age of adolescence, kind of warts and all sort of movie that really didn't shy away from the, you know, real conflicts that, that kids were dealing with and the real isolation and really stuff that I think, you know, probably their parents didn't even know was happening at the time this movie came out. It was a pretty significant show of how, uh, the school system really wasn't doing much to protect any kids who were being ostracized by their students. Oh yeah. There's, there, there wasn't any talk of processing your emotions I mean, definitely when I went to middle school, I I even remember one instance where um, a kid in my one of my English classes called somebody else a fag and the teacher laughed. So I can really identify with Don Wiener's experience in a lot of ways of just feeling like there's I can be getting called Wiener Dog by a whole auditorium of people being chanted at and tormented and. No one's gonna do anything about it. And it's uh, it's interesting to me because that the use of the word fag in this movie is is much mm-hmm. different than the use it was in in so many '80s movies. Um, it sounds so much harsher in this, um, but also so much more real to her situation and the situations of the characters. Yeah, the if you're uncomfortable with fag, lesbo, and retard, those those words are all over this movie. In fact, I think one of the original titles for this movie w- was called Faggots and Retards. That that title wouldn't have flown over, <laughs> especially if I don't think that would have flown in 90, 1995, much less revisiting that movie with that title. No, but I have to admire someone that mm. thinks that um that I mean, whatever. Maybe that was just a working title. Another working title was Middle Middle Child, I think, too. But that's much more vague. But, you know, with, with the usage of those slurs, it is interesting because with kids that are that age, I don't... Like, kids are so obsessed and also terrified of sex or the idea of sex, and they don't even really fully know what it is. And by using those those types of like gay slurs 
like they don't even realize the full impact of it. And I remember that that hatefulness, like sixth grade era. I mean, I definitely I remember it very well. But yeah, the the 80s version of, of using fag was like an arbitrary like sort of thing. And yeah, there was like a, you were putting someone down. But the way that um, it's used in this is very much like aggressive, mean spirited bullying. But in this, it, by the same token, one thing that Todd Salons does with any of his villains, the one main bully, Brandon, played by Brandon Sexton III, who's like spouting these, I mean, those three words are regular out of his mouth the whole movie. Um, we find out that he has a brother that is intellectually disabled and there is his root, you know, so he's lashing out and being hateful and he's actually dealing with this at home. And it's one thing that Salons does really well is humanize even the most unsavory of characters. So I'm not saying that you can you you can excuse away Brandon's terrible bullying behavior, but it gives you more insight as to who who his character is. Yeah, and I think you also like uh, Todd Salons kind of shows like the classism and you know that happens in middle school when kids are materialism is already kind of like taking hold and Don comes from a more well-off family whereas Brendan Brandon they're not well off and so you see him trying to ask out uh, one of the girls who's oh. you know wealthier and she kind of mocks him for trying to give her a, a brown or a cookie from the lunchroom that she said didn't even cost any money as a gift it's such a humiliating moment. And it's really kind of, I think he does a good job of kind of showing all the angles and not really kind of painting everything in black and white, you know, whereas uh, I've said this tons of times before with 80s movies where, uh, you know, there's the breakdown of like, here's the geeks, here's the jocks, here's, you know, I mean, they have to go through this like, I mean, they kind of did it in every 90s high school movie too, but I think this movie um, really doesn't set up the the pecking order of the school that way it's like it it kind of like opens on dawn but then we start seeing how uh other kids have it too people outside of dawn also have a hard time Mm -hmm. yeah the the way that the movie opens uh well one on a portrait of her family and then immediately into dawn walking through the gauntlet of the middle school lunchroom i don't know if anyone can hone in on that feeling of the lunchroom when you're going, when you don't have a place to sit, you know, and you're going to find a place. I know I can. And I wanted, there were sometimes I just wanted to like eat outside or not eat at all or stay in the classroom just so I didn't have to deal with that moment. Um, and I, I, salons really picks up on these little nuances and the middle school, even, even high school experience, but specifically for this movie, the middle school experience of feeling just not welcome. Yeah, yeah. In the uh, this sort of like the first uh, sequence, uh, the stall sequence where um, Don is, uh, you know, kind of bullied in in the bathroom stall. And I really I think because the the first half of this movie to me is so strong the second half of the movie I think is great. You know I mean? I, I, re- I really love this movie, but the, the first half has such a strong impression on me with those first few scenes, the lunchroom, yeah. that bathroom scene, the second half of the movie, 
uh, kind of seems like it kind of glides more. It's not as shocking to me because the first half mm-hmm. is like kind of hits you so hard. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think in some ways it's good because it kind of lightens its tone as it goes along. But then at the same time, it doesn't have this sort of like sappy, happy ending. Things aren't tied up in a nice bow. It, it's pretty kind of o- almost uh, kind of ends as it began, you know, uh, except for Dawn's like a little more numb. It's almost like she's kind of got thicker skin. One thing that starts out a little bit into the film and continues all throughout is Dawn's relationship with her, uh, with her best friend, Ricky, right? His name is Ricky. Yeah. And he's like, isn't he like in fourth grade or something? He's like a couple years younger than her. Yeah. He's younger than her and he's, he's constantly called a faggot. This is where Salon's, I don't know how he did it, but he had the ability to capture um, not only Dawn's, you know, geeky, awkward, gawkiness of being in seventh grade, but also that she is also, you know, kind of vengeful in some ways. She's self-absorbed and uh, well, at the same time also being hopeful and, you know, becomes enthralled with a high school boy and she's resilient in a lot of ways. But um, the relationship with Ricky is interesting to me because we see it throughout the film and how the transference of bully behavior, like when she's bullied by somebody and called a lesbo or called whatever name, she, you know, says the same thing to her sister when her sister asks for the remote control, you know, it's like drop dead lesbo. Like she has no idea what she's saying, but she's taking that bullying and putting it on someone else. And that to me happening throughout the movie and she does it to Ricky like more than at least three times I think um that to me is so interesting and I think adds a whole other layer um to the intelligence behind this film and what it's what it's trying to say and that it's one thing to be bullied and then you take how you're affected by that and then you project it on other people too yeah, I think that's the movie's like strongest uh, element is that it it really kind of shows the the complexities of of characters. Like Dawn isn't just straightforward. Like we don't feel straightforward sympathy for her. She she can be like you said quite vengeful, and she's not the most likable character. So mm-hmm. it it when you're watching it, it is like this sort of complex thing to wrap your brain around because you know you're kind of used to being showed this is a loser and you, you know, and you, you want to start rooting for him, but you're not necessarily rooting for Dawn, but she is interesting and you, you do relate to her, but you don't, you, you know, you, and you, you kind of, I guess you kind of hope for the best for her. you hope her life gets better, but, you, but she isn't a likable character. And I don't think that Todd Salons, that's like his thing. I don't think he's trying to make any one character like likable. And I, but I think that that's kind of real life, you know, that's, uh, mm-hmm. there's plenty of, people who we interact with and you know you you can quote unquote deal with but you never know what someone else is going through what they're dealing with and that may be uh why they're lashing out at people or why they act a certain way but I think he really does a great job of of showing us what her life is like and then and then and then also like showing her lashing out like how it affects someone else that's close to her and with that being said, Don Wiener, I think, is uh, still an icon for outcasts in, in a lot of ways because she represents not just someone who's who's kept down. She's very resilient and she's she's self-reliant even when 
the world is constantly shitting on her. You know, she's she's still coming back. Also with this movie, the and all of Todd Salon's movies, how it looks at the relationship between pain and humor and how they kind of are intertwined is really explored. I, I think that this is such a good jumping off point for any of his other movies, Welcome to the Dollhouses, because it's it's one of those things of looking at a movie and the humor in it as if are are you laughing at what's happening? Are you laughing with what's happening to the main character? Or is it more of a like, I'm laughing because I get it and because I, I feel empathy or uncomfortable? I think that uh, the humor of this movie is uh, is easier to understand and uh, start with before you go on to any of uh, Solanza's other movies. Well, let's stop there. We'll go to another clip from Welcome to Dollhouse. We'll come back. We'll talk about the cast and we'll talk a little bit about the behind the scenes of this movie and then uh, its success on the film festival circuit and beyond. God, I love this movie. Can't wait for the second clip. Anyway, I hate those stupid kinds of parties. They always treat you like little kid. She probably had a fucking magician. Yeah. I hate parties too. My parents are turning this down tomorrow. Fuck. What for? Their anniversary. Asshole. Where'd you get that cassette player? Ralphie gave it to me. Why do you hang out with that faggot? Ralphie? Yeah. Just because he's a faggot doesn't mean he's an asshole. Yeah, maybe. Brandon, I can't be your girlfriend. I want to, but I'm in love with someone else. Who? You wouldn't know him. What's his name? And no one you know. What's his name? He's older. What's his fucking name? Steve Rogers. He's in high school. Brandon. Brandon. Brandon, wait. Where are you going? We still have some yodels left. So this movie marked the debut of several actors, some that went on to have uh, very long careers, the first being the star of the movie, Heather Matarazzo, who plays Don Wiener. Man, this woman just really, and woman, she was a girl, okay? She was she was not even in seventh grade when this movie came out. Um, it is such a memorable performance, and I know that she felt... Um, when she was doing this, that this was like a PG version of what, what she had gone through already. And I, I think Todd Salons thought that was pretty cute that she felt it was a PG version, but she really just knocked it out of the park. And I fairly certain too, that she came to audition for a part that was later written out of the script, but ended up landing the part of Dawn. And I, I, I can't imagine another actor doing what she did because it, it doesn't even feel it's not like I feel like I'm watching you know something that's real it v- feels very much like a movie but she's just so she embodies the role of Don Wiener it really amazes me especially on uh, a, a second watch when we were prepping for the the episode I, I like to do one watch where I kind of watch everything and then another watch where I kind of just focus on the acting and her performance is really layered. I mean, even when Steve comes over and she's kind of like she there's this level of excitement in the beginning 
where she's like fixing them food and it's like this sort of like hyper <laughs> hyper energy, you know, and she's like rambling off all the things they have to eat in their kitchen. But then it like there's this more subdued performance where she, you know, he's eating and like kind of grossly smacking his lips and stuff. And she's like, do you want to hear me play piano? And then it goes into the whole her showing him her fingers scene. There's so many beats there that I think are that you would see from an actor like many you know years older it feels very natural if it's the the performance that she gives kind of it really blows me away I can, I can understand why she won like an independent spirit award for her performance in this at such a young age and i could see how if you're a director and telling a kid to you know be angry be upset be hurt you know do these feelings how that could feel a little vanilla or not true uh but every time like dawn gets angry i don't know how many times and her storming off or her like angrily like crossing her arms it doesn't seem forced it's just she is right there with that part and the stuff with steve the love interest her high school love interest played by eric mabius i i can't decide what is my favorite scene with them like where she first sees him And it's just, you can see the love coming over her eyes and like, she doesn't have to do anything. It's just all, it's all in her face. Cut to the next shot of her laying in bed, staring at the sky. Like, like I remember that feeling, you know, like that feeling of just being like, there's no one else except that God that I saw before me, (laughs) you know? And I, I, maybe it was just, she was the right age and had, could just channel that but i don't know she's she is a really great actress even now so i think it was just it's always been with her and i and i love the way todd salon shows how what what a scumbag he is you know like how self-centered he is and kind of gross he is and uh, eric Mabius. yeah yeah but you know we see that side of it as an audience even though she's so like you know she looks at him like like you said like he's like this sort of like greek god and he's disgusting. And he, yeah, in, in the scene where he comes over and she's making him food and showing, yeah, showing him her fingers. And that is such a layered part. And if you know Salonza's twisted humor, like she, the innocence of a girl just thinking that maybe he's attracted to her fingers and that has something to do with a sexual act. Like yeah. she doesn't know she's not connecting the dots, but salons is like, we know what's going on and we know how messed up that scene is. And Steve has no idea what's even happening in that. He's monopolizing her attention, her food. He even steals money when he's over there. Like he's a scumbag. And I do also, and it could feel completely trite when we have in that scene too, Steve accidentally drops his ID and Dawn picks it up and like pockets it. And then we find that she's making a shrine in the basement or in her room of Steve. And that's, it's also something that a kid that age does. Like you make a shrine to that person. who's The Greek God, you know, there are just so many things that just feel so legit. The movie's realistic in a sense that he, she, she runs to him after he leaves the parents' party like he's in the band. Uh, Steve is in the band with her brother, and so they play oh uh, her parents' uh, wedding anniversary. And she's looking for him, and he's already left to go home to you know sleep with some girl. And so when she confronts him, you know, another movie, you know, it's not this magical moment where she wins him over, you know, 
uh, he actually like kind of like insults her and she's like, oh, join my club. It's for special people, you know, and he's kind of tells her what he back then, what special equaled and kind of it's like closes the door in her face. And it's like this. It's you it's, have- it's it's like you have to laugh. It's like this heartbreaking yet sort very, very like extre- extremely funny scene. And that's again with the layering because, you know, the humor, the the direct humor in that is Steve saying special people, you know what that means? Your club is for retards. Like that's the direct joke. But then the other layer to that is Don's face only hearing the insult, but not understanding like he's not trying to insult her. He's just telling her what special people means, but she's taking it as like, yeah, this like heartbreaking moment. And again, it's that different levels of humor that just I don't know. Todd Salon has a way to just uh, blow up a scene with yeah. just one or two lines. Well, I think uh, her brother uh, gets some of the funniest lines in this movie, <laughs> you know, and his his character is such a. Uh, you know, a, a computer geek of that era uh, when emailing was just starting, you know, there's like references to it, you know, like they're both, t- you know, him and Steve are taking computer science together and he's tutoring Steve in computer science. And he's so matter of fact, you know, he's like the perfect older brother character yeah. who's nerdy yet, you know, very like he's driven and kind of like already has like things figured out. Do you ever think about girls, Mark? Are you kidding? I want to get into a good school, don't I? Oh, Mark Wiener, played by uh, Matthew Farber, who actually passed away in March of this year, which is so crazy, so young, 47. Um, but his his performance in this, I, I can't imagine. I know he was nominated, too, for this movie, but I, I can't imagine that he ever escaped notoriety from, from this film. He really does pack it. He's like a, a little uh, Jeff Goldblum. That's yeah, what he looks like yeah, because it, it is, you know, he's like kind of odd looking and has like the tenor of his voice is kind of odd, but he's not cartoony, you know what I mean? So it's like Mm-mm. he's he feels authentic and he sounds authentic and the, his delivery is just so great. And just their band. I mean, I would watch if there oh, was a movie, band. if there was a movie just about their band and their band practices, <laughs> I'd watch a 90 minute movie of that. I mean, their band practice scenes are like amongst my favorite scenes of the whole movie. Well, shit, there goes the band. (laughs) Steve, I I think you were singing a little flat. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, the band. What were they called? The Quadra... Quadronics? Quadramatics? Something really... Something mathematical. Um, Though they they started sounding pretty good when Steve joined the band, though. I mean, they were were sounding on point during the, the wedding party. And I'm, you know, I'm only a drummer, but Steve didn't sound flat to me in that scene. But, I, yeah. you know, what, what, who, who am I? Who am I to say? Uh, but, yeah, they do sound really good at the at the wedding. They pulled it together. And I'd say kind of rounding out. Well, we already talked a little bit about Eric Mabius uh, playing Steve. This was a debut role for him, too. Who, I mean, he has a huge career now. I know him best as Tim from The L Word. He, he's great in this movie and such a such a hunk. Didn't you sit next to him in a theater one time, Justin? I did. I didn't want to like be that, you know, be that well, guy. Yeah. But yes, I went to Sundance in 97 and he was in a movie called Black Circle Boys, which I got into. Uh, I got tickets to and uh, 
it was like sold out and he, I recognized him from welcome to the dollhouse. And he came next to me. He's like, Hey, can I sit here? Like I was supposed to be on the guest list for this and they didn't put me on. I was like, I mean, you can sit wherever you want. You're like in the movie, you're like in movies, <laughs> you know? And it was just so strange. And he was like super nice. I mean, he was, you know, obviously probably hadn't, I mean, I'm sure he's still super nice, but super nice at the time. He obviously wasn't a big enough factor to where they didn't give him, you know, comp passes to get in to the movie that he was, you know, starring in. But uh, that's pretty cool. I would have had a moment if that guy sat next to me, it, you know, and it, I mean, and he almost seemed like kind of uh, strange that someone would recognize him, but it was, you know, that movie, uh, I was like, you're, you're Steve from welcome to the house. Dude, you're like at Sundance. People totally know welcome at the dollhouse. Yeah. You know? totally. Let you know that. <laughs> um, also to round out kind of the main, main cast um, is Brandon Sexton, the third. And this kid I think this was his, yeah, this was his first movie. And then I think right after, right around the same time, he's the little punk thief from Empire Records. Yeah. Uh, he, he's been around in, in so many movies, kind of like Brad Renfro. I love it when he pops up in a movie and he's always so good at playing a baby faced little scumbag that you kind of want to make out with, but also want to punch at the same time. Yeah. He was in an indie film called Hurricane Streets that I really liked. I think that oh, came yeah. out maybe like the late 90s. I've always really loved every movie that I've ever seen him in. Um, he was in uh, Desert Blue. Uh, it was a movie with Christina Ricci I really loved. And Boys Don't Cry. He's He gives a great performance as a terrible person it's very in chill, that movie. very chilling in that movie. Yeah. He's in Pecker. <laughs> of course, he's in Pecker. Um, yeah, he's definitely made the rounds in independent film. So I wanted to kind of, we'll close things out on talking about uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse uh, is, is is a success in film festival circuits. Um, it didn't, uh, I don't think it like got into a few of the big ones, but then eventually uh, started hitting the festival scene. And there was a little bit more of a, a tiny bit more evolution to the character of Don Wiener. Todd Salons wanted that character to come back in palindromes and then later uh she comes back in wiener dog that came out in 2016 and heather matarazzo wanted nothing to do with with having dawn coming back and i think also didn't think that she should come back and she certainly didn't want to be part of that i think she was a little intense about her feelings when she expressed that when salons asked her, um, but he did, you know, go ahead and, and have the character of Dawn come back, uh, just not played by her. And um, it, it's, it feels like Heather Matarazzo playing Dawn affected her on like a deep level. Like I said before, she was going into seventh grade and having made this movie that was uh, turned into a big deal you know, she ended up being bullied in some ways, but it was more just by kids that were jealous of her. And I think it says a lot about the kid is that she she knew what she wanted to do. And I think that having the success of that movie made her have more self-confidence than even maybe she, she would have before that. Um, so I think in some ways Dawn helped her, but I think at the same time, when she would be interviewed about this movie or talk about this movie, she said that it really affected her 
because people would be, say something of the equivalent, like, how's it feel to play the ugly kid or the ugly girl? And, you know, you could ask that question or something along those lines, however many times you're going to internalize that. So I think she felt like she really wanted to get away from quirky roles. And while Dawn is someone that she feels so, I mean, she is Dawn Wiener. Um, I think that she feels incredibly close to Dawn. And I think that that was that internalization and also feeling close to her was the reason that she didn't want to have any part of Dawn coming back. I, I get all that, but man, it would have been interesting to have her reprise her role in Wiener Dog versus Greta Gerwig. It was mm-hmm. a Wiener Dog came out in maybe three years ago. Yeah, and uh, I can't, I, I can't really speak for palindromes. I, I feel like how she's represented in that movie was not necessarily the trajectory I would have seen for Don Wiener, and I think with um, and and she's she dies in that movie um like commit suicide and in when she comes back in wiener dog that was to be like what if like this other life path that that don wiener would have had and in wiener dog she's a vet tech who steals a dog that's going to be euthanized and she nurses the dog back to health and that to me that was like that's completely what Dawn Wiener would have done. She would have defied authority and she would have nursed the dog back to health that no one wanted that was going to be put down. That's yeah. completely what Dawn Wiener would have done. And that would have been cool to see uh, Heather Matarazzo do that. And and it is what it is. She's always going to be Dawn Wiener, but Greta Gerwig plays that character wonderfully. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. Let's move on to our picks of the week. We'll come back. We'll do a little wrap-up, final thoughts on Welcome to the Dollhouse. All right, sounds good. We both stayed with Todd Salons for our picks of the week. I went with uh, 2001 Storytelling, and you went with his third feature, Happiness. What can you tell me about that movie? Happiness. I could probably tell you way too much about happiness that would make you uncomfortable, Justin. Well, let's keep it, um, let's keep it PG-13 at least. <laughs> All right. Making audiences feel uncomfortable hasn't always been a popular path to take in movies. However, we see this more and more in movies nowadays. But happiness was definitely part of the initial emergence of this type of film. Sometimes it was like a bleak drama, but more often this genre found its home in a very unsettling or squirm-worthy black comedy that exposed us to intimate truths uh, that maybe we don't want to face or you know, at least don't want to be confronted with that are committed by everyday people. First off, let me just say this, you know, like we kind of said before, Todd Salanz's films aren't for everyone. And whenever I brought this movie up before, not so much now, I've felt awkward recommending it, but I've, I've, I've gotten over it because there is so much worthwhile in this movie. With happiness, I'm amazed at its boldness and brutality for exposing uncomfortable sexual topics. The title of the film is ironic, and we know this from the very opening of the film. It doesn't mean happiness is conversely about sadness, but more that all humans seek the same things, including happiness, and all have varying degrees of failure or being stunted in some way something that prevents us from achieving said happiness. All right, here we go. 
This is an intertwining story about three sisters. Joy, played by Jane Addams, is a deeply sensitive woman but lacks confidence and isn't the best judge of character and is just constantly let down by life. Her sister, Helen, played by Lara Flynn Boyle, is the more confident, gossipy, successful artist-poet sister of the three. And Cynthia Stevenson rounds out the sisters as Trish, the waspy, uptight, judgmental housewife um, who's married to a therapist, and she has no idea that her husband is a raging pedophile. Dylan Baker bravely, ever so bravely, plays this part. And I say that because if you're like me, you can't see this guy in any other movie, TV show, anything that he's in and not think of him in this role. It's it's that impactful, I'll say. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman edges into the primary cast as the patient of the pedophile therapist who describes himself as just too boring, has this intensely pornographic fantasies that he is always going through. Uh, his mind and is obsessed with his neighbor, Helen, who's the most unattainable of the three sisters. His entire mouth breather neighbor next door subplot is probably my favorite aspect of this whole movie. There are so many great parts to this, but his character, it's, I don't even, I don't even really know, but I've, I know that I, in my everyday life, I've referenced the mouth breather in the elevator next to you many times. As with any intertwining story, there are so many more layers, which leads us to other subplots. And I find it pretty impossible to not be engaged in this movie for over two hours. And it does run over two hours. But why would anyone want to see deep, dark human despair and find the humor within? What does this say about us as the audience? What does that say about humanity? I think the point of this film is to make us be a little bit more introspective and consider the lives of others. Happiness is the unnerving suggestion that you don't know your neighbor, but somehow we're all seeking the same things in life. We just may go about them in different ways. There are extremely poignant moments in the film and downright nauseating ones too. Moments where you can't help but laugh because either one, you can't believe what's happening, or two, it's just hilariously uncomfortable situations that seem completely plausible. I feel like laughing at the darkness in this film is how you're supposed to watch happiness. And I love movies that expose human behaviors that are going on behind the curtains, the private moments when people aren't being watched. This is happiness, every bit of it. There's a perverse nature to that too, and this movie leaves your jaw dropping more than a few times. There's frank dialogue uh, in it that feels completely honest, even if we don't say it like this in, you know, quote unquote, real life. But Salon's chalked happiness full of cutting quips, evenly spread between passive aggressive comments with direct punches to the gut, but all sharing the same level of biting commentary on human interaction. The reason this movie makes an impact is because um, it speaks taboo truths and shows us the realities which are hard to accept. And this happens in all of Salon's movies. Being the voyeur into the life of a obscene phone caller who's masturbating on the other line or into the mind of a pedophile who's too weak to overcome his inner conflicts, but shown as a human, just like any other person, or maybe a woman conflicted over murdering her rapist or the life of a woman who's gotten so used to being let down that she knowingly allows herself to be used over and over again. These realities definitely exist. 
and they all deal with the innermost feelings that are the hardest to talk about, even down to the very real feeling of being unable to have emotions, period. I know I've kind of talked about this movie in a roundabout way, but it is about how you personally experience these characters. Salons takes realistic situations and allows us another way to view them, taking the ugly side of people on top of either beautiful, tranquil, or even a dingy backdrop and reshapes our way of thinking about the situation or how we look at that person. You could easily reject that feeling or you could feel very impacted by happiness. Either way, this film truly causes a response in every single person who ever sees it. There's so much to say about happiness, but the only thing, the first thing that always pops in my mind is uh, one of the great openings of a movie. And if you've never seen John Lovitz <laughs> do anything but sort of his goofy characters that he does, uh, it, I think it makes it all the more shocking when you see John Lovitz in this movie, in the opening. That opening is so incredible. I wish I just had someone else to like d- just perform that scene because it is is minimal and wonderful and so um yeah chock yeah. full of uh, raw emotion that we've all felt at one time or another i think the opening alone could is a is a, is a great short film you know serves, <laughs> serves is just a great short film it is um i want to hear you talk about storytelling because i really really loved that movie so with storytelling, I think Todd Salons uh, really kind of borrows from some of the themes of his other movies. Uh, he breaks this movie into kind of how happiness, how everybody was kind of interconnected in some way. This movie is broken up into two parts, uh, but they're but the stories aren't connected. And he has them labeled. Uh, the first the first one is labeled fiction, which portrays Selma Blair. It takes place in a college creative writing class. Selma Blair is having a sexual relationship with one of her classmates as well as her professor. And when she has an unfortunate experience with her professor, she writes about it in third person and presents it to the class. And when she's telling the story, her class kind of berates her and says it's cliched and, uh, you know, this is overly provocative for its own good. And I almost think that Todd Slons was kind of poking a little bit at critics who said happiness was a little bit too uh, dark, uh, even though everything that happened to her in her story was true. And I think that's why he kind of puts that tag on there as this being fiction. And uh, it's really kind of like a biting uh, scene. And even though these stories aren't connected by characters, I mean, they're kind of connected in themes of like what we do, what we deem is uh, what's comfortable to talk about and what's not comfortable to talk about. And, you know, certainly when, when someone's have, when someone goes through a sexual assault or, or somebody's going through um, a mental illness, that's usually something that's not not so much now, but I think at the time more frowned upon to talk openly, especially in uh, in a classroom. So the second story, uh, which is labeled nonfiction, deals with uh, high school. So again, I think Todd Salons is like, you know, did the adolescent, a lot of themes with adolescence and Welcome to the Dollhouse and kind of dips a little bit into high school here with uh kind of the slacker stoner kid who kind of also has like a, the same relationship with his parents that Don Wiener did. Like the, you know, he doesn't really seem like he fits in. He doesn't have any, doesn't have like a lot of ambition and sort of they're sort of on his case. Um, but a filmmaker played by Paul Giamatti, a documentary filmmaker starts following him around and is interested in, 
you know, sees something in him. And this is labeled uh, nonfiction, even though it, it, in a way it's like more fictitious because, you know, we're, we're dealing with this sort of like reality television type theme or documentary docudrama type theme. Um, and his parents are played by Julie Haggerty and John Goodman uh, perfectly. They really sort of give, I think, that dark edge of the sort of crumbling of the American family uh, that you see done very well in John Waters and I think done really greatly here. This movie does have a lot of dark overtones. It is a movie that I think is not as easily digestible as like Welcome to the Dollhouse. The first segment of this is a, is a pretty can be a pretty unpleasant watch as well as parts of the second story. But I think overall it does fit together and it does make for a, a really good movie. I mean, it is uneven in a way because, uh, you know, it's not structured like a normal movie is. It's almost like two movies in one. It's almost like you're watching like a, a mini double feature in a way. But in some ways it's kind of refreshing because you don't see that too often. I really appreciated how this movie was set up. And I was really surprised too because I, I intentionally didn't, know anything or look anything up about it and just kind of wanted to um experience it and all of the performances man um Selma Blair like kind of I actually watched Dark Horse right before I watched this and how I appreciated storytelling versus Dark Horse with Selma Blair specifically um was like leaps and and bounds beyond um but storytelling was yeah easily right up there with um, another great Todd Salons film. Yeah. These three welcome to Dawes happiness and storytelling, I think all like kind of fit together in some way. And then Mm -hmm. after that, you know, he kind of went into other territory, but these three films I think make for a nice, you know, if you're wanting to do like a Todd Salons type, you know, screening, those are the, in my, in my opinion, anyway, the three films to, to go for. So it's not family time. Um, that it is with not. with all three of those, but I do kind of feel like Welcome to the Dollhouse should be required viewing for middle school kids. I don't know if it's if it'd be a good or a bad thing, but feel like it could be helpful at some point. But maybe kids just can't take this in. Really, I know yeah. it it affected me. Maybe they could. It's hard to say. Kids hard seem much say. more mature nowadays, too. I you know. I don't know. Okay. You know, what are the kids I, d- I don't have kids, so I, I can't speak of it personally, I guess. Well, I let's... bet they could still benefit from watching it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, those are our picks of the week. Uh, both Todd Salon's films, Happiness and Storytelling. Um, check them out if you get the chance, if you haven't seen them. Uh, let's keep uh, moving along here. Here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Sometimes I like to shine a light on a memorable character Billy's played and why I appreciate it so much. 
Who remembers that 1979 summer camp comedy Meatballs? Justin, you've seen that. Like, I don't know, maybe recently, but you've seen that, right? Oh, sure. Okay. Our main feature, Welcome to the Dollhouse, makes me think immediately about being bullied. A sad kid, a kid who gets picked on, but is pretty cool, but either too meek, quiet, or an easy target for, you know, some crappy kids at camp to treat them terribly. There's a lot of backstory behind the making of Ivan Reitman's Meatballs, but for this merry moment, let's just focus on the awesomeness of Billy's camp counselor character, Tripper. He's the coolest without caring. He's the first one to defend. And while he's got his eye on the girl, he's not totally controlled by his raging hormones. What's unusually awesome about this summer camp movie is how ever so cool and calm Tripper makes the dorky kids feel important and empowered. And for a camp movie of this decade and like right before the 80s hit, it feels really special. It's always surprised me at how much of a heart there is in this movie. When Tripper's asked by the blonde bombshell camp counselor who's going to provide the hottest action this summer, Tripper plainly says, Well, you know who I'd watch out for is Spaz, the stereotypical, dorky-looking, taped-together glasses camp counselor who couldn't ever lay down a smooth move if he tried. The 80s were chocked full in, like, the heyday of making fun of people based on appearances, but here, Tripper's coming across as for real. Like, he's not making fun of him. He's planting a seed with the hot girl that maybe she's judging him based on his appearance alone and underneath he's a real stud muffin. More than a few times, Tripper bumps up Spaz's self-esteem and even by the end, Spaz is more confident about himself. Now, that character is only a minor example of how Tripper has come to the rescue of the dorks at Camp North Star. You must be the short, depressed kid we ordered, Tripper says to the sad kiddo sitting on his suitcase, isolating himself from the other campers. Immediately, Tripper gravitates towards the little guy named Rudy. The giant subplot of Meatballs is Tripper building up Rudy's confidence, giving him the strength through acceptance, making him laugh, showing him that even the coolest counselor wants to hang out with him. And this is done in classic Bill Murray form. So laid back, no big deal. Sure, I'll play some late night poker with you, kid, because I want to hang out with you. When Rudy gets shamed and embarrassed that he's not the best soccer player, he decides to run away from camp. Tripper tracks him down and nonchalantly says, hey man, take me with you. Again, reverting to that laughter to quell the kid's crippling fear of uh, being the outsider at camp. You know, you make one good friend a summer, and I think you're doing pretty well, Tripper tells Rudy, obviously referring to their growing friendship. Look, if you have trouble, you come to me, tell me, and I'll help you out. Tripper and Rudy start going on morning runs together, resulting in these adorable bonding scenes. And one particular morning, it's parents' day at camp, and Rudy's dad can't make it. You mind hanging out with me today? My dad can't make it either, Tripper tells him. I swear the lax and sly way that Billy plays Tripper even puts me at ease. How can you argue with that approach, especially when it's towards a kid? There's a legendary moment in Meatballs when Tripper gives the infamously inspirational It Just Doesn't Matter speech, meant to help the Camp North Star kids be their own heroes, remind them that nothing really matters, and be a little less afraid of competing against the physically superior, wealthy, rival camp across the forest. And this is kind of the culmination of the entire summer he spent building up Rudy's character. This is the speech that Dawn Wiener should have really had at some point in her life. Um, Tripper saying, hey, you know, I know we're all underdogs, but you know what? 
I know the odds are against us, but I, it just doesn't matter. Nothing really matters. And even if we're the best out there, we're not the richest kids in the block, but even that doesn't matter. Nothing matters. You are who you are, and you use what's been given to you, and you just do your best. This improvised speech of Tripper's is still one of my most favorite moments of Bill's career that he's ever committed to screen. And as a result, the big competition between Camp North Star and Camp Mohawk, the kids prove they can kick some ass, and it's not about them just being humiliated. And when no one thinks Rudy can win the long-distance race, it's Tripper who pushes him to persevere. You'd never guess you'd be in store for a movie that's so heartwarming, especially when it's a summer camp movie. Confidence-building moments in a movie that's called Meatballs. And even though she didn't have a guiding hand like Rudy did with Tripper, Dawn Weider still persevered, despite constant bullying. Meatballs is uh, currently streaming on Tubi right now. Uh, That's a free service. So, you know, that movie's definitely worth a good positive look-see so you can learn a little bit about Tripper, the defender of the bullied. It's almost a perfect time to watch Meatballs. We're coming up on the early makings of summer. It's true. It's about to be summer camp time. I don't know if, can we even go to summer camp in this pandemic time? I don't think there's going to be summer camp this year. God, that's depressing. Yeah, probably not. But anyway, if you can't go to summer camp, watch a little Meatballs that will lift your spirits. It's so darn positive. It's such a good movie. <laughs> it's also a, you know, I watch that movie and it's like, though Bill Murray looks way younger in that movie, it's like, man, that guy never really did look very young. <laughs> no, no, he definitely looks like he's a 27 year old camp counselor in that movie. But I, it was also during the era when I feel like everybody looked they looked like they were yeah, in their every, late everybody, 20s. Everybody looked very weathered in the early, late 70s, <laughs> early 80s. That's because everybody smoked like two packs a day. Everybody smoked, did a lot of drugs, and drank yeah. way too young. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we should um, sum up some thoughts here on Welcome to the Dollhouse, yeah? Yeah. Um, well, did you have any final thoughts on the movie? I did have one. I mean, I could talk about this movie uh, forever, but I'll, I'll try to just keep it at one thought. We mentioned before how there's a lot of negative language and you know, uh, usage of the word like fag and lesbo. And Don Weeder Dog is, is called the latter quite a few times. And at that time, I mean, she was so young, she, she says that she didn't know what that meant. And she did some very brief investigation and found out what it meant. And for Heather Matarazzo, she learned that lesbo meant lesbian and that meant a woman liking another woman. And she said that that moment actually it clicked with her and she felt like, Oh, that's me. That's what I've always felt. I just didn't know that there was a word for it, but that's how I feel. And Heather Matarazzo is very much an out lesbian these days. And she said that she was parading around the set saying, I'm a lesbian. I'm a lesbian (laughs) really proudly. And I don't know. I don't know if she's a, you know, exaggerating that story or not, but I was delighted to to hear that. Yeah, it's it's interesting that this movie had such an effect on her, uh, you know, pretty much for her whole life. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Do you have any, any final thoughts for this one? Uh, not really like a big final thought. I, I think that, the, you know, with Todd Salons, like you, you could easily, if you don't realize you're going into 
a dark comedy, it could almost kind of like hit you too hard, you know? Um, mm-hmm. he, he's, he's one of those directors, I think, same with like a director like John Waters or something where their name kind of speaks volumes to people like who haven't seen their movies, maybe, you know, like they have like this sort of controversy behind their films. Um, and I, but I really think like, you know, if you, if you, if Todd Salons has been a director that, you know, you just hear about him and you've been turned off, like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to check his movies out. Welcome to the Dollhouse is a great place to start. I think it is like a really bittersweet movie and I think it's a really enjoyable film, you know, and even though it's dark, I, I do think it's incredibly funny. And I, and I, man, oh, yeah. I still think it really holds up well today. Like rewatching it multiple times the last few weeks, it really hasn't aged a bit. I mean, it, it plays, you know, I mean, aside from like every movie from, you know, the past uh, minus the technology stuff. Um, I think like it, re- you know, still drives home the same, same feelings that it did when it came out. I think it goes along with the idea that I always have that I feel like no matter what decade we're in, I think we fundamentally are always, everyone's always going through the same thing, even though we have different technologies and, you know, there are different things that influence us. We still go through the basic same experiences, you know, whatever outside influences affect that this movie is still relatable. And there's, there's a reason for that. Um, I do have one question for you, Justin. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite scene of Dawn getting secret revenge? Cause she has quite a few scenes where she, she gets the last word without anyone knowing. Hmm. For instance, I think my favorite is where someone was doing a video at the the wedding celebration or marriage celebration of her parents and she gets pushed into a kiddie pool and her entire family laughs and her little sister that she hates so much asked to have it rewound and then like later on you see Dawn takes that that tape outside and like bashes it with a hammer <laughs> I don't I don't know I don't know if there's like a favorite scene of her getting revenge but I I do there is a scene that I think is very realistic uh where there's all you know throwing stuff on her head and everything and she just sort of in a rage like shoots a spitball but accidentally it shoots the teacher <laughs> in the eye and ends up going to the principal and getting in trouble and her parents come to pick her up and when she's leaving uh you know they they do that same music like that do 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 the like sort of drum drum beat and guitar and uh, you see yeah. the teacher with like this gigantic sort of bandage <laughs> over her eye just staring the, like giving Dawn like the the stank eye with her one good eye I laugh so hard when when that part comes up because it's so over dramatic like come on your eye is fine it, I, you know I guess I, if I had one extra final thought it's just that, that that driving music that they use like this sort of interlude I think it's from like a like a band's like a song that was like already out and they just took like this sort of little section of the song that they use, uh, you know, in between scenes uh, to kind of show like the edge of the movie. Um, yeah. I think, it, I think it flows really well, like fits the movie really well. I think, I think the band's called the undead. If I if memory serves, I wanted to kind of throw this into, I failed to mention in storytelling. I'm a huge Bell and Sebastian fan and Bell and Sebastian, uh, has like original music that that runs throughout the movie storytelling. If you're, if you like that band, Todd Salons is always paying very close attention to 
the uh, music that he puts in his movies. Yeah, and I, I like that the use of music in Welcome to the Dollhouse because some indie films, a lot of times, you know, they'll have the sort of like sad piano cello thing happening, you know, in this type of movie, and it really kind of shies away from that, I think, like kind of typical, you know, go-to indie uh, type music. Well, this one definitely doesn't go towards that. I, it um, rides that classical wave and sometimes, you know, does hit those somber notes. But that driving music, whenever Dawn is been wronged or just something is not going right, that she's angry about something. Um, I love it. I love that it drives the movie so much. And uh, I like the I like the use of the title of the movie being one of the songs that uh, her brother's band plays that Steve's singing. Um, you know, it has like a very sort of like the '60s, you know, garage mm-hmm. rocky meets the Doors type vibe sound to it. It's so good. I I would listen to that song. I download that song today. But uh, yeah, so welcome to the Dollhouse. Uh, definitely check it out. It's not available to stream anywhere right now, and I, I would expect that if it were to pop up, it would be kind of a surprise. But it is. If you find a copy of it out there, I, I guarantee it's it's going to be one you're you're going to want to revisit. It's worthy of owning. Oh, absolutely. Good, a good one to have in the collection. Oh yeah. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our discussion on Welcome to the Dollhouse. Coming at you remotely uh, this time, we hope the the sound was halfway decent. Um, Hopefully, once this whole pandemic is over, we'll get back to our regular sounding uh, program where we're both in a room together, face-to-face, with a movie playing in the background. Um, If you want to check out uh, older episodes, uh, we have everything archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. There's also a lot of merch there that you can check out um, that we have for sale. All the money goes to funding uh, the podcast to help us uh, bring uh, bigger and better programming to you. Uh, Please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're the most active on Instagram, so you can find out what's going on, uh, what episode, what movies we're doing for future episodes. And if you want to contact us directly for any reason whatsoever, uh, please do at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Stay healthy out there, guys. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>